Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. You're listening to Disruptive, the podcast from Harvard's Wyss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. What if I told you there are vaccines in the works that can target and destroy a tumor in your body, cure you of an addiction, or more safely and efficiently spay or neuter your pets? Well, these are just some of the possibilities that led the Wyss Institute to introduce their new focus area, immunomaterials. Immunotherapy, treatment that uses your body's own immune system to help fight disease, has groundbreaking and life-saving implications. In addition to cancers and addictions, Wyss believes this work could help develop new therapeutic strategies against infections such as TB and autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes. In today's podcast, I'll be talking with Wyss core faculty member Dave Mooney, collaborator Kai Vucherpfennig of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and graduate researcher Eileen Lee. We'll not only cover why the Wyss feels the time is right to create this new focus area and look into some projects in progress, but we'll also explore the relationship of research in the lab with research in clinical settings. Our bodies, and all living systems, accomplish tasks far more sophisticated and dynamic than any entity yet designed by humans. The mission of the Wyss Institute is to transform healthcare, industry, and the environment by emulating the way nature builds. Dave Mooney, who leads Visa's new immunomaterials focus area, is the Robert P. Pincus Family Professor of Bioengineering at the John A. Paulson Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. He plays an active role in major biomedical and chemical engineering professional societies, serves as an editorial advisor to several journals and publishers, and participates on several industry advisory boards. Mooney is a member of the National Academy of Engineering and the National Academy of Medicine and a fellow of the National Academy of Inventors. Dave Mooney, welcome again to Disruptive. Oh, it's my pleasure. So we're talking on the occasion of the renaming and the redefining of one of the platforms within the Wyss Institute. What has been in the past programmable nanomaterials is becoming immunomaterials. Now, can you share with us the, the story, the, the evolution there? What have you been doing in programmable nanomaterials and what led you to rename and refocus as immunomaterials? At the Wyss Institute, we believe that uh, it's very important to uh, continue to change with time. We, when we started the Institute, we felt that if we were doing the same things five or 10 years later, that probably meant we weren't uh, actually looking forward enough and moving forward enough. So the goal from the beginning has been not to establish and then stay static, but instead to keep moving, to succeed or to fail and to learn from that and then to move on to the next challenges. And so that's really what we're doing here programmable nanomaterials, the concept was that we would design materials that would largely be used in medicine, but also in other areas. And we would design these materials at the size scale of individual molecules, so the nanoscale. And by doing that, we would be able to achieve a wide variety of functions, biologically, physically, medically, that were unavailable previously. And this would open up new possibilities for commercial products, for treatments for patients. And we were quite successful with that over time. Uh, we've uh, developed a number of different strategies. There's been a number of inventions, uh, companies that have spun out. But also with time, we began to realize that over the last year or two, our focus was increasingly around the idea of manipulating the immune system. Immunotherapy, I think, is one of the new frontiers for bioengineering. And we decided to really uh, just end the old platform and start this new platform with a focus specifically on manipulating the immune system. Mm-hmm. And choosing to focus on immunomaterials and immunotherapies, ultimately, 
Let me ask you this. In terms of the criteria, how much of that is because you see that's where you're going to have the greatest impact or because you see that where you're going to have the most likely or the, the most efficient translation? What kind of tipped the scales when you said, you know what, we're going this way? You know, it's been clear for quite a long time that dysfunction of the immune system underlies many diseases, including cancer, autoimmune disease, uh, things like type 1 diabetes. But also over the last number of years, it's become clear that immune cells play very active roles in many other aspects of biology that we didn't appreciate previously, things such as tissue regeneration. And the immunologists have done a simply fantastic job of identifying the relevant cells, identifying the molecules that oftentimes mediate uh, these effects of the cells. And so we realize that this creates you know, a really uh, fantastic opportunity to now come in from the engineering side and to develop materials that can then manipulate immune cells in the body to try to drive therapeutic outcomes and you know, cures for disease, diagnosis of disease. And so this really was kind of the starting point, this recognition that that field was at the point where it was making this transition from a lot of basic science uh, knowledge to where we could really begin to apply that knowledge in a very targeted manner. One of the things I sense that you're saying is you refocused not because you failed, but because you succeeded. And so what were some of the successes? Yes. So uh, there's a variety of different successes. You know, the nanoscale, let's start there. There's been a tremendous amount of advances, uh, both scientifically as well as translationally, in the area of understanding how one can build materials out of DNA. And this is really exciting because a single molecule of DNA will associate with another strand in a very specific manner that we understand very readily. And it was appreciated that beyond DNA serving as a means of storing information, which is how we normally think about it, it also could provide a really incredible approach to provide nanoscale control over structure. For listeners to whom that field is fairly new, one of the things that you're talking about there is DNA and RNA as well have this very limited set of rules. And that's actually what gives you so much control versus a protein, which is... Yes, yeah. Proteins have a, a lot of freedom in terms of how they form structures internally as well as then interact with other proteins, while DNA, as you said, has a much simpler rule book. And so once you understand that rule book, uh, then it opens up the possibility of being able to design in a really precise manner. And so we've been exploring that through the activities of some of the faculty, uh, Pang Yin, uh, William Shi in the platform, and they've just been spectacularly successful in really creating materials at the nanoscale with incredible precision. By the way, let me just say to listeners that there is an earlier uh, disruptive podcast with William Shi and Pang Yin about molecular robotics and programming DNA. So if you want to delve into that one in depth, check out that one. We've been developing a wide variety of different materials that are useful for drug delivery. Examples include new types of uh, gels that we can inject via needle, so a minimally invasive introduction into the body. And these materials provide a depot for a drug, and the drug slowly is released over time. So instead of having to take multiple pills spaced apart every four hours or 12 hours or go into the doctor's office to get an infusion, this opens up the possibility of introducing the system once and then having days or weeks, even months of release of a drug. And the release may either be continuous or we may be able to actively regulate it by applying signals like ultrasound or electromagnetic fields from outside the body. 
And so we've been exploring and using these in a variety of different contexts and currently have partnerships with several different companies to move these towards clinical translation in the delivery of specific drug molecules. And then also at smaller size scales, we've also been formulating various types of nanoparticle-based drug delivery systems that can be injected in the bloodstream. One of the great successes in the platform and the institute was the development of technology coming out of Donald Ingber's lab where one can inject nanoparticle-based particles into the bloodstream, and they will specifically unload their drug at a site where a blood vessel would be blocked. So it allows you to then really specifically deliver drugs to those locations, cause the clot to dissolve, to allow blood to flow. And that went on to become an institute project at the Fees Institute several years ago and is under active uh, development right now. We also have a lot of biomaterials activities that we've done to develop new materials that enable various kinds of functionalities. And one set of these materials we've realized over the last few years are tremendously useful in creating immune responses against cancer. And the first of these is a little piece of plastic about the size of a baby aspirin tablet that's currently being placed in patients at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And these are patients that have stage four melanoma. And the intention of this little plastic disc is that it will generate an immune response against the patient's cancer to destroy those cancerous cells and those tumors. And at the end of the day, the disc itself, after it's generated this immune response, will dissolve away. What do you do so that it triggers that immune response? So the, the material is designed so it first releases a, a drug that will cause accumulation of the target immune cells literally inside the device. Wow. And then once the cells are accumulated inside, we then have another drug molecule they pick up that activates those cells. And simultaneously, they see fragments of cancer. So they then associate these fragments of cancer as being something dangerous and something that they should try to generate a response to uh, seek out and then destroy any cells that have the same signature. Mm-hmm. You're overcoming the fact that the body doesn't attack these cancer cells because they're its own. And what you're doing there is you're not tricking, perhaps, but whatever word you would use, the body to now recognize those as something they need to attack. Absolutely. So we're presenting fragments of the cancer in a context that the body would see it as being something dangerous and foreign. And so really trying to reprogram the immune response in that the patient's immune system because, as you said, cancer is part of their body, the immune system tolerates it. And what we're trying to do is break that tolerance and make the immune system respond to cancerous cells the same way they would to some foreign agent that invaded your body, like a virus or a bacteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have these different strands to kind of go back to the starting question of how, you know, how we ended up at immunomaterials. We have these materials that we can control structure and function. We've shown that we can be, they can be very useful in a very broad sense for drug delivery in the body. And we've shown that we have a capacity to be able to concentrate and manipulate immune cells. And so these really came together and as we began you know, looking at where the real frontiers were gonna be in medicine in the coming years, and we realized that we had a you know, really incredible tool set that we thought could allow us to broadly address immune dysfunction and a variety of different types of diseases that involved one way or another immune cells. And so if you are refocusing to narrow 
the range of projects. Uh, and I often think of when one focuses it. So there's many, many things worth doing. And what you're saying is we've got to discipline ourselves here and put our resources in the most fruitful directions. Are things getting eliminated? So there's a, a yes, basically. The, the short answer is yes. Um, in academics, it's always hard to say that, uh, but uh, the reality is yes. Um, and being eliminated in a few ways. Eliminated, one, in a very good way, that some of these things have been very successful. So they've now gone out into the world. And so we don't need to keep them as our baby anymore because they've grown up and they've left the house. Uh, and we just need to let them go uh, and do their own thing. So part of it is is that when we set out to form this institute, we said we're going to take risks and we we're going to fail. And we have done that. There's some projects that have failed. And so it's very important to be able to recognize failure and be able to stop uh, when you recognize something is not going to work. And so some things we've said we're not going to do anymore. And then others are in transition. Some of these pieces are ending up in the new platform. Others are actually very vibrant, but maybe not quite ready to leave completely yet. But we have a lot of interest, let's say, from companies that we collaborate with. So some of the activities that are, in essence, self-supporting, we're keeping and we're maintaining if we think that they have a real value and a potential synergy with uh, immunomaterials. What's your vision for the next year? Now, obviously, when we talk in terms of just a year, I'm not asking so much what are you going to achieve in the lab. But how will the fact that you're refocusing change things over the next year? Where do you want to be in that process of the refocus a year from now? That's a great question. So a year from now, where I think we would really like to be and what we'd consider to be successful is if one of the projects that we've started at this point in time has transitioned to being in a phase one clinical trial. So mm -hmm. we've really been able to take one of the new projects and start to explore whether it can help people. So that's one criteria for success. We'd also like to have signed an agreement with a company to commercialize at least one of our products or systems. And the reason why that's important is at the end of the day, uh, we have resources internally, but they will never be sufficient to take a medical product all the way through to FDA approval. That's multi-year, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. So at the end of the day, we need to partner with somebody who can do that. So we'd like to have that kind of partnering in place for at least one of our projects. Mm -hmm. And we'd like to have three or four of the projects that we're just starting now at more of the pipeline stage have transitioned to become platformer institute projects. So we know, okay, we've got several different projects they look really promising. They're on their way to being uh, evaluated at the end of the day in humans. And what underlies all this is we obviously need to build the structure. We need to hire a few people that have the right expertise. We didn't have a lot of expertise in immunology within the staff before, mm -hmm. so we need to build that up. We return to the cancer vaccine, and Dave Mooney talks about the second generation. What they had engineered using the implantable plastic disc the size of a baby aspirin can now be injected into the body from a syringe. Listen closely. This is pretty remarkable. We came up with the concept of injecting small microparticles. So these are particles that individually are quite small and distinct. But the idea is that we would inject these and they would assemble to form a three-dimensional structure once they're in the body. So we're, in essence injecting discrete particles, and then they coalesce and form a structure in the body that can then achieve all of the same things that the implantable device, in terms of it creates a physical space, in essence, a home into which immune cells can be attracted, 
accumulated and they will literally crawl in and interact with the material to get appropriately trained, but this in a much less invasive manner. I let Dave know that I'm a bit impressed and he quickly salutes his partners. The collaboration with the Dana-Farber is really crucial to what we're doing here. We have tremendous expertise on the bioengineering side, the material side, the chemistry side. What we don't have is the deep knowledge of immunology and the really thorough understanding of patient needs, patient biology, and the historical perspective of what types of strategies are both feasible and likely to succeed in the diverse people uh, that have cancer. And so it's really a, a marriage of synergistic uh, knowledge bases and expertises. And I feel completely comfortable saying that, you know, neither we nor they alone couldn't be nearly as successful as we are together. Following Dave's lead, I turned to Kai Vucherpenig, Professor of Microbiology and Immunobiology, Harvard Medical School, Professor of Neurology and Chair Cancer Immunology and Virology at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I first came to the U.S. as a medical student, and I was very impressed by the interface of science and medicine, in particular at Harvard Medical School. I therefore returned as a postdoctoral fellow initially for two years. My plans were, of course, to go back to Germany. But then I ended up staying because I just loved the science that I was doing and the fantastic scientific environment at Harvard. I talk a lot on this podcast to folks in the lab and in the translation end of things, and I realize Kai brings a clinical perspective. He's someone who actually treats patients. And I'm curious how he sees the intersecting paths of cancer research and treatment and how our approach has evolved over the years. Treating cancer has always been a very challenging problem because cancer cells are normal cells that have acquired abnormal capabilities, for example, the ability to grow in an uncontrolled manner so that they don't follow the guidance cues of the environment to stop proliferating. So the, the problem essentially is how do you target the tumor cells while sparing all of the normal cells in the body? He points out that traditional approaches to cancer therapy, radiation and chemotherapy, both target all cells that are rapidly proliferating. And that means a lot of collateral damage to healthy cells. The cells in the hair follicles, so the, you know, with chemotherapy, the hair falls out. Patients get very sick and get diarrhea because the cells in the intestines uh, rapidly replenish. And then very importantly, also the cells in, uh, of the hematopoietic system that form the blood and all of the immune cells, uh, meaning that cancer patients treated with chemotherapy uh, have a much greater incidence of infections. So where this story has started to turn is that we can now use the capabilities of the immune system to target cancer. And uh, we have learned that strengthening the ability of the immune system can result in durable responses in patients even with advanced disease. Right now, this is in a, in a subpopulation of patients, for example, in patients with advanced melanoma, which is a very rapidly progressive skin cancer, about 30 to 40 percent of patients benefit from immunotherapy, and some of these patients are actually long-term survivors. 
When I ask how they trick the immune system into taking on cancer, Kai refers first to the evolution of our immune system. The immune system actually developed to deal with infectious agents. If you think about our evolutionary history, infections were a much larger health problem than cancer. Cancer most frequently uh, develops in people who are past their reproductive age, while infections happen at any period of life, in particular in young people. So the immune system has an exquisite ability to mount a very potent response to infectious agent, but tumors are much less immunogenic. He tells me we've now learned that the immune system can use the same principles of immune recognition to deal with cancers. Dave Mooney's lab has taken this on. The conventional approach to develop a vaccine is to develop an antigen and then co-inject it with what immunologists call an adjuvant, which is essentially a molecule or a group of molecules that will induce an immune response. And then uh, these are drained into the uh, local lymph nodes where they elicit an immune response by T cells and B cells. The, the problem with this approach is that the antigen is only available for a relatively short period of time. It drains into the lymph nodes. It's taken up by cells there. It's probably around for a couple of days. Now, what Dr. Mooney has done is to uh, create a local microenvironment at the injection site that slowly releases the antigen and the adjuvant over a period of weeks. The second important aspect of this approach, and he calls this uh, uh, scaffolds, is that they actually recruit the right type of immune cells into this microenvironment where they're exposed to the antigen and the adjuvant, and then they migrate from there into the lymph nodes to elicit a T-cell and B-cell response. So you get a much stronger and more sustained immune response compared to the traditional approach. What is the stage you're at right now in terms of your clinical trials? What's next? So the implantable version is actually being tested in a clinical trial at Dana-Farber at the moment. This is in patients with advanced melanoma. And uh, so the Wies and the Dana-Farber team have actually worked very closely together to take this very novel concept into a clinical trial without the involvement of, of a biotech or pharma company. So basically, the way this worked is that the, the WIS developed a scaffold and, and the process for making the scaffold in a, in a reproducible manner. And then there is a, a clinical-grade lab uh, at the Dana-Farber that took this and then incorporated all of the other uh, components, in particular the tumor antigens from the patient's tumor, into the scaffold. And then these are implanted in, into patients, and the trial is ongoing. I, I, I've seen some of the data from the trial uh, I think I, I think I can say it looks encouraging. <laughs> uh -huh. And so we are now collaborating with David to use the injectable version as a second-generation vaccine. Obviously, it has a lot of advantages because the manufacturing will be much more straightforward. Basically, you take the, the rods and then you mix them 
with whatever antigen you want to immunize with. And so this is something that can be done in a very straightforward manner and doesn't require uh, a very complex manufacturing process at the, at the clinical side. Kai reveals to me just how dynamic the interaction of medicine and research can be at the Dana-Farber. You know, most people think of biomedical research as doing something in the lab, which we call the bench, and then taking into the clinic, which we call the bedside. So, you know, a traditional approach is sort of the bench to bedside. But what actually happened here was that uh, one of my colleagues at the Dana-Farber, Dr. Glenn Dranoff, developed a cancer vaccine in the lab, took it into the clinic, to the bedside, and then analyzed the immune responses in the patients and identified uh, several interesting antigens, and then we've actually taken that back into the lab, so from the bedside back into the bench to develop the vaccine, and we now want to take it back to the bedside. So it's, you know, bench, bedside, bedside, <laughs> bench, <laughs> bench to bedside, right? And so the, the, the point is to actually learn what, what is happening in a productive anti-tumor immune response in people and then to use those insights to formulate next-generation vaccines. The, the reason this is important is that experimental animal models can be very informative, but of course they don't fully simulate the human biology. And this is particularly important in an immune response, and so insights from the clinic as to what actually works in people are very important for developing the most effective immunotherapy agents. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me like not only is the technology cutting edge or, or experimental, but the process of collaboration between the VIS and the Dana-Farber sounds like you're going a little bit outside the box there as well. Yeah, yes, we definitely do. So I think what's happening in the cancer immunotherapy field is that we now see amazing responses to immunotherapy agents in people, and we're starting to examine that at, you know, at a high cellular and molecular resolution, really learning what's happening in people. We're really taking that back into the lab and asking, what does that teach us for the next generation of immunotherapies? And I think that's actually an important paradigm because every experimental model, including you know, the many different animal models of cancer, all have a lot of uh, limitations. And so bringing in knowledge of what works in people and what doesn't work in people is actually very instructive. I mentioned to Kai what Dave Mooney had said about the contributions of the Vise and Dana-Farber being complementary, that what you're very good at and what you bring to the game is different from what the Vise brings, and so there's a, there's a kind of a magic that goes on there. Could you talk about that? Yes. <laughs> uh, there's actually a lot of this type of magic ongoing at Harvard Medical School. This is actually why I came back. <laughs> very good. Research. Well, I, I, saw, I saw that magic ongoing when I first came there. You know, the WIS has tremendous expertise in bioengineering and uh, developing novel concepts to address key problems in, in human biology. And then the Dana-Farber and the other hospitals have uh, 
the ability to study human disease uh, at a high resolution, and they also do interventions in people, you know, to perform clinical trials to test new ideas. And so when you bring these two different sets of expertise together, new and exciting things can happen. So, you know, somebody develops a new approach for vaccination. It's being tested at the Dana-Farber. We analyze the immune response, develop a next-generation vaccine. And, you know, it's really um, a positive feedback loop Mm -hmm. where, you know, you learn from what the other people uh, are doing. And I think both components are absolutely essential to rapidly make progress. Kai has a clear sense of what sorts of partners make the best collaborators. So what actually is impressive about uh, Dave Mooney is that he not only has the bioengineering expertise, but he's actually made the effort to learn a lot of immunology. So I teach uh, one of the major immunology courses to our uh, graduate program, and I, I was actually very surprised to see him in the, in the back row in one of these classes. Uh-huh. And so, you know, he took an advanced graduate-level immunology course to really immerse himself in the field. You know, people talk about, you know, collaborations between different fields, but they are, you know, it can be really fantastic, but they're also barriers because, you know, different fields have different language, for example. Mm -hmm. And to develop uh, a productive collaboration, people have to understand the other field sufficiently to be able to really communicate at an advanced level. And so, so David has really made the effort to learn immunology. And so that really comes through in our collaborations. And so what a lot of people do is they, you know, they have an idea, they get, you know, some collaborators involved, they, they publish a nice paper, they write a grant, and then they're done. So what uh, what David and Eileen really had to do was, you know, to push the boundary of what they could actually do. You know, he could have said at this point, you know, we have something that's in clinical trials. You know, it looks like it's showing an intended benefit. But he said, okay, let's take it to the next level. Let's develop an injectable version. So, you know, he keeps pushing the boundary. I want to hear from Eileen Lee. Like Kai, Eileen offers a novel perspective on the process of innovation at the VIS. She'll be leaving the Institute soon, but as a graduate researcher, her work on her PhD thesis has been integral to the development of the injectable cancer vaccine. Yes, I actually just defended last week. And how did you feel? I passed. (laughs) (laughs) It feels really good to put together all of the work that we've done uh, in a finalized form to you know, look at where it started, where it could potentially go. Yeah, I definitely feel a sense of relief. How many years you've been at it? Seven. So I started, Oh, God! I know. I started in 2010. <laughs> Do students realize that when they start on that process, that it might be seven years? I don't think so. Actually, when I started... When I started, I remember going to interviews at different graduate school programs, and I always ask the students, uh, like, what's the average, you know, time to degree in your lab? And if they say anything more than six years, I'm like, no, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay. So when I interviewed at Dave's lab, they were like, yeah, five and a half years. Mm-hmm. Like that's, you know, the reasonable amount. And, you know, I think like at my year four or five, I did think about wrapping up and just, you know, defending. But I was really interested in doing more uh, work. So I stayed on. <laughs> Dave Mooney makes clear how remarkable her commitment was. She's a PhD student now. Most PhD students get to a certain point where they get eager to finish and move on to the next step of their lives. We're always, as a society, we're always in a hurry. And she had been working on this project, and she had been training actually a postdoctoral fellow, and a little unusual that PhD students training a (laughs) postdoctoral fellow. But she was training this postdoctoral fellow in in these vaccines and, and how to utilize these. And I think the concept was that this post, Eileen would finish and this postdoc would take over the project. Well, this postdoc got very excited about taking a job in consulting and and so ended up leaving the lab. And, you know, so I'm wondering what's going to happen to the project. And it was really striking to me as Eileen came in for our next meeting and says to me is that she had been thinking that she would probably finish up her thesis and defend in the next six months or year. But she was really concerned that with this other individual leaving that then the project might not really finish the the way it should. It might kind of fall apart a little bit with her being gone and no one immediately there to take over. So she was going to put off her defense, the completion of her thesis, and stick around uh, for another year or so just to make sure this project got done. And I was just really astounded because she has these wonderful papers she's published. She's gotten a tremendous amount out of her thesis. She could have moved on to a very prestigious postdoctoral fellowship at that point in time. But she more or less just said, I'm going to put all that on hold because I want this to be done right. And I think it needs me. I just really wanted to see where we could take the vaccine, what kind of responses uh, we can generate. And for example, if the vaccine can actually have an effect on controlling tumor growth uh, in mice. And that was partly the reason that I stayed, Uh just because I was very interested in... um, understanding more. I was very curious about what can happen. Right. You'd gotten hooked, right? <laughs> yeah. I think I'd, I don't think I would have been very satisfied if I left. Lee came to the Mooney lab just as they were moving from the implantable to the injectable form of the vaccine. And the advantage of the injectable over the implantable? The advantage is simplicity. It's, you know, simple to manufacture. It's simple to utilize. It's a modular system that allows us to combine different immunomodulating drugs and assemble different types of uh, vaccines. So right now, we've evaluated the vaccine platform using a number of tumor-specific antigens, uh, proteins, and peptides. And we've seen positive response in uh, several of these contexts. And we've demonstrated that the vaccine could uh, eradicate established tumors, control tumor growth, uh, induce all sorts of powerful immune responses, such as getting more T cells into the tumor, And we've also shown that the vaccine plays in synergy with uh, some of the existing immunotherapies. So, you know, we're very excited about what we have shown preclinically. As you leave uh, to move on in your life, there's been a lot of progress on this vaccine and moving even in toward, you know, now we're moving to human clinical trials and you can see a future of this actually having impact. How does that feel to you in terms of 
pride or, or that sort of thing in terms of what you've accomplished? Yeah. Um, so when we started, we were starting from scratch, from literally point zero of making a new material in the lab and not knowing what that material will do. And in the process of, you know, these six, seven years that we've been developing the vaccine, we've built all the way to a vaccine that where we've now seen tremendous preclinical results in a number of settings. I'm very grateful for, you know, being able to do all of this work. And I'm very proud of how far we've come in developing this platform and the broad applications that this will have. At that point, as you said, five, five and a half years into the process when you decided, well, wait, I don't want to quit. I want to keep going. Have you felt like that last year and a half or two was worth it? Totally. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. I return to Kai Butcher-Pennig. I want to know how he sees cancer treatment evolving over the next five to 10 years. I, I think we're in a, in a era of very rapid change in, in cancer therapy. So what you can see is that in some cancers in which immunotherapies were evaluated first, immunotherapy is already frontline therapy. So for example, with patients with melanoma, immunotherapy is frontline therapy, and chemotherapy is the backup. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see that trend continuing that immunotherapies will be given earlier in patients. And maybe 10 years from now, immunotherapy will be given first rather than chemotherapy in many cancers. Because for immunotherapy to work optimally, you want a fully functional immune system. You want the person to be as healthy as possible. You don't want to have compromised it. My prediction is that immunotherapy will be much more efficacious in a frontline setting where the immune system hasn't been beaten up yet than in the late stage of disease where it needs to be first evaluated. The other trend that I think we're going to see is that immunotherapy will be combined with uh, what we call targeted therapies that target specific molecular lesions and tumors. And I think those types of combinations will be effective because the mechanisms of resistance are very different. So, you know, the targeted therapy target, you know, specific molecular pathways and tumor cells, while immunotherapy target uh, specific immune cell populations. And the more distinct the resistance mechanisms are, the more likely a combination is going to work. Now, what will have to be taken into account as to what the impact of a targeted therapy on the immune system is going to be. So I think in the future, drug development in cancer will have to very closely involve uh, examination of the effects of drugs on the immune system. When you think about the past, a lot of immunotherapy trials failed because they had to be done in patients with advanced disease. Uh, And in those patients, uh, the immune system was already seriously compromised. And I think this this will have to change. I think we need to move towards therapeutic approaches that that leave immune system function intact. 
And the reasons immunotherapies have usually been a last resort is because we hadn't yet proven that they were effective, nor were we clear about their side effects. Am I right? Yes. So, I mean, this is the path for all therapeutics that first tested in patients with advanced disease who have exhausted other options. And then if there's a signal, then they can be tested in earlier stages of disease. I think with immunotherapies, this is particularly important. And there are even studies underway to ask what are the benefits if we give immunotherapy before any other therapeutic strategy. So, for for example, even before surgery. Mm. And that's an interesting idea. It's called uh, neoadjuvant therapy. And it's an interesting idea because you leave the source of the antigens and the immune cells in the tumor in the patient while you give uh, an initial dose or two of immunotherapy. We're not talking about a long period of time, maybe two to four weeks, Mm -hmm. but there would still be enough time to boost the existing immune response before you take the antigen and a lot of the immune cells out of the patient. So people are starting to explore that, and I think that this will turn out to be extremely interesting. Thank you, Kai. That was wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I've got a good sense of the cancer vaccine and the team at work, but what about those other potential pathways for immunomaterials? I turn back to Dave Mooney. Can it help fight infections? You know, we're, we're not trying to, at this point, trying to treat kind of a routine garden variety infections that, you know, take this antibiotic and you're going to be fine. We're thinking more along the lines of chronic infectious disease, where you have an infection that you simply can't get rid of, antibiotic-resistant threats, situations where you don't even really know what the disease is, but uh, you, it's clear the person has a debilitating disease that may be life-threatening. So we would like to develop a therapeutic vaccine. So again, the idea of treating patients who have the disease so we can be able to identify or at least extract some information about what the agent is that's causing the disease and then have a very rapid generation or fabrication of a vaccine specific to that agent to induce a therapeutic response and either slow down the disease or clear the disease completely from those patients. So we're really going to be targeting a wide variety of different types of infectious agents, but what they'll have in common is that they tend to be deadly, they tend to be chronic, they tend to be things that aren't treatable or very difficult to treat with than kind of the classic approaches. Okay. What about uh, autoimmune diseases? Yes. So, you know, in autoimmune disease, things like type 1 diabetes, we have in many ways the opposite problem or challenge as we do in something like cancer. In autoimmune disease, your immune system is now attacking agents in your body that are normal and not disease-causing. And by attacking and destroying these cells and tissues, they wreak, you know, very significant uh, uh, havoc in the body and can lead to a variety of side effects and, and death. So here what we're trying to do is actually tune down an over-exuberant immune response instead of tuning one up. Instead of making it go after cancer that it was ignoring, you want it to begin to be less aggressive against something that it doesn't need to be going after. Yes, that's correct. And so the the idea is, is similar in many ways. We have immune cells that are doing something we don't want them to do. We would like to reprogram their behavior. And so we're, again, using materials as a very convenient means of attracting and concentrating large numbers of immune cells. And once we have a, a large collection of them, we can manipulate those cells and, in this case, now give them cues to turn down the immune response instead of tuning it up. 
Mm-hmm. You're also doing some work with addiction. I know one of the things that you're talking about is uh, being able to use this technology, this approach to deal with, uh, for instance, a nicotine addiction. Yes. So one of the you know really striking observations that have come out of work, for example, of Eileen Lees, who was really targeting cancer, but we realize that these systems are very potent and seem to have the capacity of breaking tolerance against many, if not virtually all, agents or molecules that are in the body. And so this opens up the possibility that this approach could be a very effective means of generating immune response against addictive agents. And this is not a new idea by us. This is something that people have been exploring for some years, but it looks like our systems may be particularly potent in this regards. And the general idea is, let's say, you know, if somebody has an addiction to cigarettes, uh, there's a particular chemical, nicotine, uh, that gives them the benefit and provides the you know, addiction to cigarettes. Well, if we can generate immune response, so when those chemicals get in the bloodstream, they're cleared virtually immediately before they have a chance to bind to their biological targets and give the individual the- signal the, uh, of addiction, right? The yeah. effect, yeah, yeah, the signal. Yes, that then you would smoke and you would get nothing from it. You would take a, an addictive drug. You would get no benefit from it. So this could be a very effective means of breaking those types of addictive uh, behaviors if the patient no longer can get any benefit or activity. So the similar idea, we're vaccinating again, but now against the target, simply trying to clear it and prevent it from binding and having any biological effect. And I had mentioned nicotine because I'd seen that mentioned in the writings, but obviously the big one in America right now is the opioids. Uh, would this potentially be helpful in, in that regard as well? Yes, it potentially would. Uh, we've not begun to explore that yet, but that clearly is just a, a tremendous need uh, in our country today. And so I think that's a very clear and pressing target for us to explore. I asked you what your vision for the uh, immunomaterials uh, focus and platform is within the next year. What is it within the next five or 10? So the, the vision for the platform within the next five to 10 years is that we have both a very specific focused impact in terms of having some of the devices and systems we develop not only enter human clinical trials, but also be established as being effective in terms of actually helping these patients. So I would like to see us go to that level. That'll probably be more of a 10-year timescale because clinical trials take a considerable period of time. Uh, but I would like to actually have validation that this concept of using materials to concentrate and manipulate immune cells can have a therapeutic effect in a reproducible manner in patients. And then in a much broader impact, you know, we are in academics, we're not a company. So it's not just about having a product, it's about changing perceptions, developing fields. And I'm hoping that with the successes that I'm planning on us having, <laughs> we're able to train a lot of really talented people and influence a broad community and have many others follow the path that we're taking and similarly be trying to develop new bioengineering strategies to manipulate the immune system. So over the long run, you know, that impact can also be really great and really magnify what we can do ourselves. If you went back instead of forward, if you went back about 10 years, what have been the biggest surprises to you about what you've learned and what you're working on today? I'd say the biggest surprises have been, one, that this strategy seems to be so potent in really changing the immune system. So it's not just initiating immune response, but we can dramatically change or alter the path 
and the type of immune response and much more than I would have first guessed. And then, you know, I, I was a complete neophyte in immunology, very unknowledgeable about it. We got started down this pathway. And so the other thing that's been really striking to me is the range of diseases and situations in which vaccination could be very, very useful as a therapy, well beyond my uh, perspective 10 years ago. Yeah, I can see that. In other words, you stuck your head in the door and didn't realize what was possible there, partly because no one had pursued it in some of these areas. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And, you know, we went through the one door, as you just described it. Uh, I, I was going through a cancer door, trying to develop a therapeutic vaccine for cancer. And once we got through that door, then you realize that once you went through that door, and now there's a whole bunch of other doors with other possibilities in front of you that you can now go through that you didn't have available previously. You, you didn't even know existed, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Dave Mooney. It's been a pleasure as always. Oh, my pleasure. You've been listening to Disruptive Immunomaterials. I'm Terrence McNally. My guests have been Dave Mooney, Kai Butcher-Pfennig, and Eileen Lee. You can learn more about their work, as well as a broad and exciting range of other projects, at the VEAS website, vies.harvard.edu. That's w-y-s-s.harvard.edu, where you'll find articles, videos, animations, and additional podcasts. In fact, Dave Mooney has been featured in another episode of Disruptive. To have podcasts delivered to you, you can sign up at the V site or on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud.com. My thanks to Seth Kroll and Mary Talikas of the V Institute, and to J.C. Swadek in production. And to you, our listeners, I look forward to being with you again soon. <laughs> <laughs>